Hallelujah. Father, as we look upon our lives, those of us in this room that have met you, that have been redeemed, that have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light, that have been pulled from the muck and mire of our sin onto the rock, Jesus Christ, that have been born again, made a new creation by the power of your word, by the Holy Spirit awakening us, regenerating our souls, we confess that there is such a dramatic before and after picture. Before we were lost, we were without hope in this world. We were aimless. We were dead, in fact, in our trans- transgressions and sins. We were lost. We were in fear of death, all the while held captive to the wages of sin. But after you interrupted this existence, caused us to be born again to newness of life, now we are hid in Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is the cleft in the rock that, that prevents us, Lord, from the judgment and gives us safe haven and safe keeping in and through this time, Lord, in this intermediate phase and to survive the great judgment of all because He has paid for our sins. In Christ alone, we owe our hope and salvation, our stability. He is our rock and He is our life preserver. He is the one who has breathed life into us. He is our hope and stay. And in Him, Lord Jesus, is our future secure. As we open up your scripture and see the promises that are laid out according to your holy word, according to your decree from ages past until their fulfillment in the incarnation. I pray that our eyes would be opened, our hearts would be encouraged, our faith would be strengthened, our profession would be magnified, and that our faith would be emboldened to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to our own souls any day when we struggle, Lord, with doubt, difficulty, weariness, and also to proclaim the message of hope in Christ to the lost even today in a world as dark as ours. I pray that your church would shine all the brighter. Thank you for your holy word. Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes to see its beauty. And I pray that it would be written upon the tables of our hearts that we may not soon forget so that we can leave this place not as just hearers, but doers as well. And all that your kingdom might advance, your name would be made great and glorified. Your church would be equipped, thoroughly equipped unto the expanse and the growth of your kingdom thoroughly furnished for every good work, and that you could cause us to grow by this means into the maturity, into Jesus Christ our Lord, that we might be without spot or blemish one day, ever more so as the day approaches, being sanctified according to the image, the likeness of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. In His holy name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we want to recognize the great privilege and gift it is to open up the Holy Scriptures, which have been preserved and God's supernatural power for us to behold today. Let us do so by turning to Psalm 104. The aim of this morning's message is to open our ears to the voice of creation, magnifying the glories of God. Psalm 104 begs us, calls to us, that our ears may be opened to hear the voice of God in His creation, magnifying His glory. The psalmist points to many aspects of God's created world and His work in the formation of the very elements of creation around us to remind us of His nature, His character, His worth, His works, His attributes, His glory. The title of this morning's message is God's Wardrobe. God's Wardrobe. This title comes from 104.1 wherein the psalmist says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. In a sense, this is God's wardrobe, if you will, splendor and majesty. More on that in a moment. For now, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word and listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. We have a bit of ground to cover, 35 verses, Psalm 104. Listen now and behold the holy word of God. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. 
He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place where you appointed, that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you watered the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows it's time for setting, you make darkness and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up and You open your hand, and they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed, and when you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. God's wardrobe. Since ancient times, clothing has represented the rank, class, or even the exploits of an individual. It's often a reflection of dignity or glory. This has historically been true, and remnants of this remain in our culture today. Think of a uniformed officer, a general in an army. Kids, have you seen like a uniform that an army guy would wear, a general? And a lot of times you'll notice like right above the pocket here, there'll be a number of different insignia. Perhaps on his shoulders there would be some uh, spangly things. I really don't know what they're called. Uh, Perhaps on this side you would have some medals and so forth. Well, all of those things, these insignia, these medals, and so forth, they signify something important. This uniform worn by this military general or officer is decorated with medals and various insignia. His garments communicate respect for his accomplishments and his position. He earns a medal for exploits in war. He earns these stripes because he's advancing in rank and so forth. So in light of this concept, one might ask, What is the Lord's clothing, so to speak? In a way, in a manner of speaking, in a figure of speech, what might be the wardrobe of the Lord? What uniform, what insignia, what medals, if you will, might He wear that would point to His accomplishments, His glory, His dignity, His rank, His worth, and so on? Though we can't see the Lord directly, we can see something like His wardrobe, something like His clothing. And the psalmist points to his creation in this song as a reflection of God's worth. So when you look at a volcano exploding, you can see a metal, as it were, pinned upon the uniform of God himself, demonstrating his power to judge, let's say. When you look upon the vast expanse of the seas, the psalmist spends some time expounding this. What do you see? 
You see the power of God manifest in this sheer vastness and the power of the floodwaters to bury his enemies and also to provide passage for ships sailing about from one landmass to another. So what is the Lord's clothing, so to speak? The clothing of the Lord is his works evident in creation. And in this song, we see in these a reflection of his glorious worth. In this way, Psalm 104 joins Psalms 103, 105, and 106, four psalms here of similar theme, in exploring how God is glorified from creation through the Exodus, from the beginning when He spoke the world into being by the word of His power, to His care and concern in establishing a covenant people and bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. These are themes that display the glory of God in this section of the Psalter. Psalm 104 adds then to this catalog by giving us a panoramic view. What's a panoramic view? Well, if you're on the top, I remember Phil and I climbed a mountain peak um, in Phoenix, on the outskirts of Phoenix a couple years ago. And when we got to the top, couldn't resist but take out your phone. And iPhones have that feature of panoramic picture, right? So you push the button down, you hold your camera, and you scan the horizon like this. And what you're trying to do is capture the perspective that this vantage point gives you. You can see the valley reaching out into the distance. You can see other mountains. You can see tiny roads like little ribbons as you're thousands of feet or however high we were above them. Thus, you have this panoramic view. Well, the author of Psalm 104 similarly in this poetry takes us up, lifts us up to behold from a vantage point of a high place, let's say, a panoramic view of creation, taking in overwhelming displays of God's power and His particular attention in both the magnitude and the detail of His creation. Now, these things, these evidences, this view compels the author, and it ought to compel the reader and the singer, us as well, to join David, Psalm 103, in solemn worship vows, opening and closing his meditation, instructing his soul just like David instructed his soul and those who sing with him to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? Because just like we saw in Psalm 103, all his benefits are manifest. So we see in 104, his clothing, if you will, via his creation is so splendid. Therefore, bless the Lord. Many have noted allusions in this psalm to the six days of creation. And Verses, in verse 2, there's reference to light. He clothes himself, covering yourself with light as with a garment. We know on the first day God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. Similarly, the heavens and the waters are referenced in verses 2 and 3. Those speak to day 2. In day 2, God separated in the waters from the heavens and so forth, and the firmament from the watery expanse. In day 4, plants were created, and verse 14 records this as well. And day 14, or in day 4, excuse me, the moon is, was created along with the celestial bodies. And so in verse 14, we have record of this as well, or excuse me, in verse 19. Sea creatures, day 5 and verse 25, the breath of life that causes living things like Adam to come into being, verse 29, as well as corresponding with day 6. Therefore, Psalm 104 touches upon the creation, the created order, and even the days and sequence of creation to draw our attention to the glories of the Lord. Psalm 104 also provides a, a corrective lens, and this is an application point that I'd like to stress this morning for our day. Psalm 104 provides for us a corrective lens during times when it seems like the world is falling apart. Notice a key phrase in Psalm 104 in verse 5. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. He, the Lord, the one who created the world in the first place, set it on foundations such that no other opposing force, person, or power, or government, or event, or era is able to shake it loose from its underpinnings. So Psalm 104 reminds us of this, and this is helpful, because we live in times where it's easy to doubt this. We live in an era, in a time where it seems like the world is falling apart, disintegrating under the weight of organized sinfulness. Psalm 104 rebukes the notion that nefarious, satanic forces have any ultimate stranglehold on the world. This is God's world. He has set it on its foundations. Yes, He does intervene in judgment and allows certain amount of that judgment consequence to be 
uh, to be endured by peoples and places and so forth, but these are according to His sovereign hand and power. They are not independent of Him. They are within the scope of His sovereignty absolutely. These confessions of Psalm 104 then hold our imagination accountable that might otherwise run wild speculating what sophisticated evil schemes are behind the chaos of our era. The psalmist directs us to behold the glory of God displayed in creation which proves His power and confirms His plan for sinners to one day be consumed from the earth on the final day when the wicked are no more even as it confirms by evidencing His provision, His plan to ransom sinners between now and then by the blood of His precious Son. The author of Psalm 104 makes his point by drawing our attention to creation. Here's a heading for you. The author of Psalm 104 features creation as, number one, God's instrument. Creation is God's instrument. Verses 1 through 9 make this point. Secondly, creation is testimony of God's provision, verses 10 through 15. Thirdly, creation is testimony of God's wisdom, verses 16 through 23. And finally, creation is inspiration for praise, verses 24 through 30. That's the basic structure of our message today, seeking to draw emphases from Psalm 103. Again, what for? To open our ears to the voice of creation magnifying the glories of God, and may I add, steadying our souls in a day when we need to be reminded that the earth is set on foundations by the Lord and it shall never be moved. Number one, the author of Psalm 104 features creation as God's instrument. Now, Let me first note that verse one will be picked up and reprised in our final point. Verses 24 and 30 are a restatement uh, and an expansion of verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here we have um, veneration of the Lord. We have a proclamation of Him and we have vows. Bless the Lord, O my soul, vows. O Lord my God, You are very great, veneration. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, proclamation. Those three points of praise will be expanded in verses 24 and 30. So let's set that aside. We'll return to verse 1 and our final point. And let's pick up on verse 2 where we see creation as God's instrument. Clothing yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Note how this picture, pictured here is God's sovereign control over creation. Not just that, but creation is actually spoken into being by Him. And it has a purpose and a design. It is God who engineers light itself. It is God who stretches out the heavens in a tangible sense and establishes their parameters the same way you and I would pitch a tent. So let's say you're going camping. Uh, Kids, are you going camping? Anybody going camping this summer? So you get, if you are, and you're going to use a tent, you, you get that box out and there's a tent inside, right? So you pull out this tent, you read the instructions, and if you're a little bit skilled on putting things together, you think, well, I can certainly stretch out this tent. I can manage this task. And if you're successful in doing it, after a half hour or so, you've put up the poles, you've stretched the lines, you've pegged it. This tent is, uh, establishes the parameter or the, the area which you will sleep in. It gives you that temporary shelter for the night. So it's easy for us to imagine being sovereign, if you will, over a tent being in control of setting it up. But when it comes to the heavens themselves, who could possibly imagine the engineering and the power, the ingenuity and the creativity it would take to establish their parameters, to set the stakes on the corners of the heavens? We don't even know where they are. To establish where these heavens uh, go and where they end and why they're there and how they will interact with the earth below and what bodies, celestial bodies and so forth, that they will house the earth and the stars and the solar systems and the galaxies and the comets and the asteroids and so forth. This is absolutely outside of the reach of our capacity and we will never be able to comprehend how God does such a thing. When we look at the heavens and we imagine their corners, as it were, pegged by the Lord, what we are looking at is His garment. His wardrobe, if you will. This is evidence of the splendor and majesty of our Lord stretched out above us. 
If God can stretch out the canopy of stars, too many for us to count. Can He not steady the pillars of the earth? You bet He can. Can He not be trusted to make a way of salvation for you to be saved from your sins? You bet He can. We've noticed in recent weeks how the stars themselves, that which the canopy of the heavens holds within its parameters, is set there as an illustration of God's purposes in redemption. As many stars as you can count in the night, that's how many and more saints that God will ransom for Himself. Children of Abraham, He will redeem from the lost. And thus, we cannot comprehend the scope of His redemptive work no more than we can comprehend the scope of the heavens. But as we look upon them, we see evidence of a God who stretches them out and if firmly fixed, they are established in their place and we set our clocks by the movement of the very bodies that they contain. Verse 3, He lays the beams of His chamber on the waters. Now, uh, we are building a house right now in the construction business. Many of you are in the trades as well. The worst place to, act, to ever build a place is in an area saturated with water. Why? Because it's unstable. Clay and water movement, especially in these parts, can create an instability and freeze-thaw cycle that can destroy a foundation in a matter of just a few seasons. We look for high, dry, secure places. That is to say, we have limitations when we establish our structures and building. God does not have the same limitations. He can lay the beams of His chambers on the very waters. He can actually use the clouds as His chariot. He makes the clouds His chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. That which is, in other words, intangible to us, mysterious to us, unpredictable, immeasurable, um, uh, elusive and uncontrollable, and in some cases even frightening to us, things like light, the heavens, the waters, the clouds, and the wind, these God has in His sovereign hand, and He utilizes them for His purposes. And that's what is poetically emphasized here. The author highlights elements of creation that are the most mysterious and unpredictable to us to show, to emphasize, that none of, of the limita- our limitations apply in God's case. These are all His servants. The light is His servant. The heavens are His servant. The waters are His servant. The clouds are under His command. The wind obeys His word. They are all subject to Him. Every manifestation of what appears to us to be intractable and uncontrollable elements of nature, they are within His sovereign control. Think about light as one example. Science itself has realized, even in its explanation and trying to perceive the nature, it falls short. So far, we have a difficult time even defining or recognizing the true nature. What is light? We haven't fully answered that question. However, the Lord knows. Light is so familiar to Him that in fact is His garment, if you will. He covers Himself with light. Light is His servant. Light is the product of His word and power. The sea, another example. It's perennially, that is, through the ages, the sea is seen as something fearful. You better respect the sea because in a moment, a storm can destroy your boat, capsize a ship, and we have yet to build an unsinkable vessel that is absolutely impervious to the wiles of the sea. The sea is unpredictable to us. It's hard to know when a hurricane gale will arise or when a rogue wave might rise hundreds of feet above the surface of the waters and drown all in its path. And even legends exist to this day like the Bermuda Triangle, this mysterious area of the ocean which seems to claim a disproportionate number of seagoing vessels. The sea is frightening to us. It's a fearsome reality. Winds so sudden and devastating in many forms are similar. Hurricanes. When a hurricane threatens the shores of one of our southern or eastern states, there is a siren that goes forth and a warning to flee the premises. No one goes out there with a hammer and a lasso in their hand to uh, peg down the hurricane or to harness it so that it doesn't harm. No, the only thing that we know to do in the face of these forces is to run away, to protect ourselves as best as possible. Yet God controls these things. The sea is under His command. Do you remember Jesus Christ? When He was revealed in the flesh, in His miraculous manifestations, He is pictured walking upon the sea. What does this represent? It represents that the sea is His footstool. 
The Lord lays the chambers of his house, as it were, the beams of his chamber upon the waters. And this was demonstrated by Jesus Christ our Lord when he walked upon the surface of the sea. When our Lord and Savior commands that the sea be solid footing underneath him, it says yes, sir, and obeys, as it were. The sea is not a threat to God. In fact, it is his instrument. God wears light as clothing. We see this in Matthew 17 in the case of Jesus Christ as well. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? When the eyes of the saints or the eyes of the three disciples are open to the glories of the one who created the universe, they saw that he indeed was arrayed in light, as it were, that he wore light in that instance as a garment. His face and his clothing, his whole being shone with a radiant glory of who he was such that light is wrapped around him as, again, what clothing represents, uh, a, a manifestation, a representation of his worth, his dignity, his value, his power, his glory, his exploits, and so forth. So here we have in these examples, again, light, heavens, waters, clouds, wind, examples of creation, even the most intangible elements, as the servant of the Lord. What about clouds being his chariot? Well, think of cloud and fire, as we've referenced recently, as pillar forms that actually lead and guide the children of Israel through the wilderness unto the promised land. It was God who was in control of every single movement when that cloud rested and when it moved in the exact and precise direction that it traveled. We can't take a couple of powerful fans up in airplanes and steer clouds, and we can't really we can't manifest you know, some sort of uh, light in the sense that God does in a fiery plume that harnesses the elements of nature without, getting, uh, real, uh, without uh, jumping through a million hoops to try to accomplish it. But God is not subject to our limitations. Light obeys His command. And the smoke and the fire and the cloud and so forth are His means even of transportation. We see this in Ezekiel's vision where the, enthro- where the uh, throne of God itself is elevated upon this cloud and uh, a structure and with winged creatures underneath and so forth, almost like a chariot where He moves whithersoever He wishes in a way that is intangible to us. He designed the heavens like the construction of a tabernacle. He lays out the beams of His will permanently upon the waters. The clouds are His chariot. Fire and smoke are under His command, and He wears light as a garment. This is our God. Creation is subject to Him. Now, the author goes on to give a for instance in verses 6 through 9. In other words, how does God use the forces of nature that are uncontrollable and unpredictable to us to accomplish His ends? Well, notice an example in verses 6 through 9. So, kids, listen closely and tell me what event is being described here, okay? What Bible story is the author of Psalm 104 referring to? You guys ready? So, what is the Bible story behind these verses? You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. Noah's Ark, that's right. The great flood is in view in verses 6 through 9. Here's a, for instance, an example where the forces of nature are used as an instrument of God to accomplish His will. Creation is a tool, in this case, of His judgments. Now, as you look across the vast watery expanse of the oceans, are you rem- do you remember the power of God to judge sin by water so deep it covers the highest mountains by 15 cubits? When you see that bow in the clouds, that rainbow, do you recognize that the judgment arrow of God has turned away from the earth such that He has sealed His promise never to flood the earth this way again? But that Boah to also you that he certainly can and has. This is what should come to mind when we look at the creation around us. Not just the waters, but also the mountains which rise and the valleys that sunk. These are pictures of a catastrophic event that so shook the world at the time of the great flood that that which followed this movement of God's finger upon the surface of this globe was unrecognizable after the waters receded. 
such that the Scriptures refer to it as a new world. Turn with me to a cross-reference in 2 Peter chapter 3. What are we to learn? What are we to behold when we look at evidence in creation of the finger of God's judgment, even in the remnants of the great flood left behind, like the mountains and valleys and the vast oceans? Well, Peter tells us as much by contrast in 2 Peter 3, verses 5 through 7. They, speaking of the sinner, for they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water. So you see, the unbeliever, the rebel, he deliberately overlooks the fact that God created this world, that He separated the lands from the waters, that He spoke and these very elements came into existence in the first place. He spoke and formed the water... uh, Formed out of water and through water, the earth was formed by the word of God. And then verse 6. And that by means of these, so by means of water, the world that then existed was deluged, flooded. We covered these verses actually in our Bible study for the young people this morning. So by means of water, the whole world was flooded and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So you see how Peter echoes the message of the author of Psalm 104? When you look upon the vast oceans, when you see the soaring heights of the uh, mountain ranges, when you plumb the depths of the canyons like the Grand Canyon in Colorado, you are to see evidence of God's power to use creation as His instrument to bring judgment against His enemies. And Peter says, this should remind us that it will happen again. It happened once by, fi- by water, it will happen again by fire. Do not forget. Look to how God clothes Himself even in nature and how this, these evidences of His power in the great flood point to His authority over the elements that He has created to accomplish His holy will. Now, as we look upon our nation, our culture, and the world in which we live, Don't Peter's words and the psalmist's words ring true as a corrective? We could ask this question, why why is there such an insidious and widespread cultural dismissal of the great flood via the pseudoscience of evolution? I'm here to tell you that evolution exists by and large. Its primary motivation, just as Peter said, is the sinful desire of man to be willfully blind to the evidence of God's power to judge. So instead of a cataclysmic event that demonstrates His authority over you and commands that you repent or else, I'm going to pretend that these fossils came here by millions and billions of years. I'm going to pretend that this canyon was created by the Colorado River over eons and eons of time. And I'm going to cover my eyes uh, from the truth that God is sovereign and that there is a day of reckoning by this ridiculous theory. Why? Furthermore, in our day, have we co-opted the sign of the Noahic covenant, the rainbow, to normalize perversion? Why do we do so? Because it's a complete inversion of what the rainbow is supposed to be. It's man's sinful desires that co-opt the rainbow as a symbol for their perverse redefinition of terms and their own image, rather than the mercy of God to turn away judgment from a world once so wicked that it deserved water over the tops of the mountains by 15 cubits. Our culture shoves the fingers of evolution in our ears, and claps the hands of the LGBT agenda over our eyes, and screams with the slogans of a pagan ritual, you hear them all in our streets today at the top of our lungs, why? To drown out the voice of creation. We'd rather embrace insanity than behold the manifold works of God. We'd rather be willfully blind to the overwhelming evidence in nature of God's power and purposes in judgment, and again, with reference to Noah, his exclusive and only way of salvation. Just like the ark was the only place where you could have safety, when the day of the Lord came, so Jesus Christ and His cross is the only place of safety when the day of fire arrives. Hell for the individual, complete destruction on the final day, and then a remaking of the world in His image All new, new heavens and new earth, that which Psalm 104 looks forward to.
Thus, Psalm 104 teaches us that creation is God's instrument. Psalm 104 is aiming to open our eyes to the voice of creation, magnifying the glories of God. Second major point. Psalm 104 is testimony of provision. Not only testimony of God's instrument, it is a tool in His hands, but it is also a source whereby He sustains the world and us. Verse 10, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Let me pause and draw an illustration from our area. One thing I appreciate about Minnesota is difficult and long as winters feel. I love that dramatic change of seasons. The world that was once dead in the cold of winters begins to spring alive in the, those first days and you know, April and May, as buds start appearing on the trees. And by now, those of you that have your gardens planting and so forth are starting to see these shoots spring forth. And isn't it dramatic? And just like a two-week span, you can look deep into your woods, you can see for 100 yards or more, but then suddenly, as if overnight, the leaves spring out and you can't even see, you know, much past, uh, you know, 10, 20 yards. It's so dense. And what this illustrates, this change of season, is how bountifully productive the ecosystems of this world yet are today. God has ordered all this symbiotic, this mutually beneficial relationship of plants decaying, providing food for plants growing, fruit-bearing trees, crops that give us life, give us food that sustains our lives, springs that gush forth from valleys, self-filtering systems in the gravel of our, even the geology of this area, such that if you drill a well, not much more than 50 feet, you're going to have pure, clean water because God filters it through nature itself. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills, they give drink to every beast of the field. Furthermore, verse 12, beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. We set bird feeders in our yards because we appreciate these marvels of engineering genius. A tiny hummingbird with its wings beating, you know, so many thousand times per minute or whatever it is, captures our attention. And we look to creation to learn how to design similar things that we might be able to gather from the genius of our creator, things that will help us negotiate this earth, even to embrace flight through with an airplane, looking at the model of a bird wings and so on and so forth. Verse 13, from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. What is the fruit of God's work? Well, it's his wardrobe of creation, if you will. It's the woods that spring to life. It's your garden that's blooming unto production of crops. It's the satisfying water purified in the mountain streams that arrives at your doorstep ready to drink. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 15, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. In these first few verses, 10 through 14, we see evidence of God's in creation, the fruit of His work, watering the beasts, housing the birds, feeding the livestock, and growing crops for man. And then in verse 15, there's an illustration of abundance. You not only give us just enough to live, but when His creation is properly stewarded, even in a post-fall world, it gives extra, grapes that can be made into wine oil to make one's face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Oil, bread, and wine. These are key figures in Scripture, key references and analogies to overflowing provision. That is to say, we look to creation and we see that our merciful God provides for us through natural means extra grapes to make into drink to gladden man's heart. He gives us extra resources in oils, that we don't necessarily need for sustenance, but allow our life to be improved that much more. And furthermore, bread to fill our barns and to sustain us and so forth. The foodstuffs of life unto abundance. These are picked up in the New Testament. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is pictured in the New Testament at the Lord's table, remember last week, as bread and wine. Creation brings forth by God's abundance bread and wine to sustain man. And so in Christ, God establishes in, 
establishes means and provision for our eternal life and new creation by His body and by His blood. Oil speaks to anointing. Putting these pictures together with the fullness of Scripture, we see that one day an anointed Messiah would come who would bring forth both bread and wine and His body and blood that would sustain man unto abundant, overflowing provision and eternal life. Creation has taught us this even in the world that blooms around us. And then the incarnation has fulfilled this picture in Christ our Lord. Thus, the author of Psalm 104 features creation not only as God's instrument, but also testimony of provision. Number three, testimony of wisdom. Verses 16 through 23 dig deeper into how God orders so intricately the elements of this world and our universe. The trees of the Lord, verse 16, are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that He planted. Without the water, the trees can't grow. The trees receive the sunlight, of course, and then through photosynthesis are able to process the sugars that come by the nutritious soil and so forth. And then they release carbon dioxide, which is necessary for the breathing systems of beasts and human beings and so forth. This is, these are a few elements of an ecosystem. An ecosystem that didn't come about by time and chance and matter randomly? No. An ecosystem that has all the signature, the forensic evidence of a carefully designed, finely tuned, precisely engineered system of ecology working together for the mutual benefit of all the elements, even, yes, in a post-fall world. Verse 17, in them, these trees, the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir tree. The high mountains are for the wild goats, The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. The mountains and rocks have a purpose. The trees have a purpose to house the living creatures. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. An absolutely precise and accurate time measurement system, a clock, if you will, is given to us in the heavens. You know, often uh, you, you, you probably heard that apologetic argument. If you're walking through the woods and you saw a clock, a watch, Right there, would you assume that squirrels had scraped together a few nuts and and, uh, messed around with their feet and suddenly a clock appeared? No. You would recognize a purpose in a designer and an engineer because it has all the marks of something that is precisely ordered. In the same way, and what do we measure our clocks by? Well, we measure our clocks in some cases by the regularity of the heavens, at least historically that has been the case. Or today by the half-life of decaying elements, which are part of God's natural creation as well. That is to say, the systems that God has put in place in His natural world are the very reference point of order, continuity, precision, and dependability that we literally set our clocks by. So if you pick up a watch and know that it has a designer, what about the thing whereby that watch is actually calibrated? Well, a greater designer still. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun to know it's time for setting. You made darkness, and it is night, and all the beasts of the forest creep about. The lion roars, or the lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away, they lie down in their dens. And then verse 23, man goes out to his work, of course, when the dawn comes, and to his labor until evening. Testimony of wisdom, creation, features God's wisdom. We see it in His provision according to kind. He gives provisions that each individual creature needs particular to their body systems. And he does so within a symbiotic and mutually beneficial, as I said, ecosystem. And he does so according to patterns and purposes that are evident even when we see a reflection of his order in seasons and time and the celestial bodies and the rotation of planets and the orientation of stars and the changing of seasons that we mark that, or that we uh, mark according to these celestial bodies. And then in the last portion of 16 through 23, we find something of a contrast. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Notice it's just one small phrase that illustrates man's work. That is to say, man is dependent on all of this provision, all of this order, in order for him to be productive. If you remove the resources, man would have nothing to work with. If you remove the order, he would have no direction. If you remove God's law, his society would fall apart. Man is productive and an agent taking stewardship and dominion only when he does so within the scope of what God has established by way of provision and creation, by way of order in his word and law, and by way of 
all of the systems that God has finally tuned to the benefit of His creation and to the benefit of man. What happens when you declare war on these systems? What happens when you decide, I'm going to make up my own laws? Well, you have something like what's inhabiting our streets today. A willful disregard for God's principles of order, and instead of building up and planting and harvesting, you have a tearing down and fires, destruction, and, ju- and self-inflicted judgment raining down upon our heads. Perhaps the most uh, dramatic illustration of man in his foolishness failing to recognize that his work is only meritorious and productive underneath and within the work of God is this so-called autonomous zone <laughs> in Seattle. Within the city of Seattle, I'm sure you've heard of you've been watching the news, there are a, a group of rabble-rousing rioters who, who declare themselves an autonomous nation. It's called CHAZ, a uh, great name, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And, they, and there's literally signs on the edge of this area that say you're now leaving the United States. And inside you find a whole bunch of graffiti and chaos and abuse and uh, a total breakdown of social order. What these people fail to realize is to call themselves autonomous is absolute absurdity. Chaz would fail tomorrow if they cut off the electricity. Chaz would fail tomorrow if nobody had a cell phone. Chaz would fail tomorrow if nobody had a building to li- live or stuff to loot. They planted a haphazard garden there, but I'm sure they stole the potting soil from Home Depot up the road. You see, they're not autonomous at all. They're just messing around with what had been provided by a whole system that preceded them. They're pretend- I was comparing it to like one of my kids. You know, uh, Israel built a pretty cool fort in the backyard, but it's not really sufficient to establish shelter for a long period of time. What if my son went to his fort and said, I declare myself a sovereign family? Well, we go out there and say, hey, it's time to unload the dishwasher. And he says, get off my property. Well, give him about 12, 14 hours. He's going to start to get a little hungry. And where will he find food? Well, he forged, you know, Israel might last a little longer than most kids. But the fact is, dependents need their family. They need the source that God has provided through those relationships and through that network. And this family is a microcosm of the picture of all creation. To declare ourselves autonomous, independent of God, is to be absolutely foolish. It's to deny that the breath in our lungs is owed our sovereign creator, that the order of our life and lifestyles is established according to his law, that the very foodstuffs that we need to support ourselves and to feed our body come from the bounty of his creation. And thus creation itself is testimony to the provision and to the wisdom of God, and we deny it to our own uh, foolishness, and to our own peril. This brings up our final point this morning. The author of Psalm 104 features creation as not only God's instrument, not only a testimony of provision, not only a testimony of wisdom, but finally, and perhaps most importantly, inspiration for praise. What should we, how should we respond with our eyes opened, our ears tuned to hear the voice of creation magnifying the glories of the Lord? We should respond as verses 24 through the remainder of the chapter uh, uh, exemplify. Uh, Kids, you ready for the stop game this morning? Want to play stop game? Okay, so two key words, you and your, okay? So when you hear me say you or your, say stop and let's count. Everybody ready? All right. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed had to play in it. Okay, listen closely. Those all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open... Your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. That was pretty chaotic. There's a lot of you's and yours there. I think it's about 14 or 15. So we can see by that little exercise the emphasis, can't we? Right now, in this passage, in this section of the psalmist, the author is directing the attention. He, who is he making the center of attention? Himself and, his, uh, and things that he is concerned about, his passions, ambitions, and purposes, and so forth? No. Upon realizing the glories of creation, 
exploring, if you will, the wardrobe of God, he directs his center of attention, or he makes the center of his attention the Lord. Hence, all this ascribing language, you and your, some 14 or 15 times. So first of all, he offers to the Lord adulation, veneration. It means to praise, to glorify, to speak the truth of the awesome reality of something, in this case, the Lord himself. Oh Lord, how manifold are your works. He is ascribing, he's venerating, he's declaring that the Lord is glorious. This is our call that we seek to obey each morning as we worship the Lord here. In wisdom, you have made them all. Again, he's summarizing what we can learn by looking across the landscape of creation, beholding the wardrobe of the Lord displayed in His glorious earth. The earth is full of your creatures. Verse 25, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships. So above the ships, beneath Leviathan, sea creature, which you formed to play in it. We don't know what's underneath the waters as we sail, but the Lord does. He has made every single creature, both those who sail across the top and those who inhabit its depths. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather, gathered up and so forth. And so we have here in verses 24 through 30, a veneration, ascribing glory to the Lord. This is the response that beholding creation deserves, beholding the glories of God evident in His creative handiwork. In verses 31 and 22, there's a proclamation to others, if you will. The author says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Um, kids, what natural um, phenomenon is in view here? When the Lord looks at the earth and it trembles, what do you think of? What is something that happens in nature? Earthquake. Earthquake, exactly. The Lord looks at the earth and it trembles. Now, what's this other natural event? He touches the mountains and they smoke. What do we call a smoking mountain? Very good. So what basically the author is saying, long live the king, long live the sovereign of earthquakes and volcanoes. Judah, what was that city you were telling us was buried by a volcano this morning? And what was the name of the volcano? And what year did it explode? So Judah was reminding us this morning, we we're studying volcanoes, that in AD 79, a volcano named Vesuvius exploded and buried a city virtually overnight. And that city was Pompeii, a wicked city. And it's interesting, we know this because it's one of the best preserved snapshots in ancient history. As the ash buried all living things and all these buildings under feet and feet and feet of this falling debris. What eventually happened is those bodies rotted and later, thousands of years later, archaeologists would discover a hole and on a whim, one of them poured plaster into the hole. And when they excavated the rubble, excavated the ash, what they had is almost a perfect cast. The ash had formed a mold, the plaster had filled that mold and you have an individual perhaps like this, who is shielding himself, covering himself from the volcano raining down on his head. Who is responsible for this activity? What is God who touches the mountains and they smoke? May the Lord of volcanoes, may the God of earthquakes live forever. May His glory be advanced and championed through these natural events. Again, when we see so, that we have fears of volcanoes today, we have fears of earthquakes today. How many times does the news uh, tell us that it's a distinct possibility that parts of California could go into the sea because there's a fault line there. So we live in concerned and nervous about the volatility of, of this earth. But the psalmist teaches us that this is due to God. And when we think about this earth and even these events, earthquakes and volcanoes, we are to turn our attention to His glory and to proclaim it. It is God who is sovereign. He touches the mountains and that He looks on the earth and it trembles. And if He so chooses, He can send California into the sea. It is He who touches the mountains and they smoke. And in, at the time of His choosing, AD 79, He could touch Mount Vesuvius and bury Pompeii in thousands of feet of ash or whatever it was. Thus, we have veneration and proclamation. And finally, we have vows. What is a proper response? We should venerate, we should glorify the Lord. We should proclaim His glory to others, and we should make a vow that we will sing His praises, even if no one else joins, as it were. Verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. 
Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. How should we hear Psalm 104? When we look at creation, what is the tone of God's message? I want to answer this question with a parallel text as we bring this sermon to a close. You can turn there if you wish. It's in Job 38. Job 38. So do you remember in the course of Job's account, up to this point, he's been somewhat disillusioned, somewhat shaken in his confidence. He's not sure how to gain perspective in spite of his suffering. There's times where he might be tempted to listen to the naysaying voices of his so-called friends. And Job's ears are not as open as they could be to the voice of creation, magnifying the glory of the Lord and bringing perspective. Job is a finite creature, limited, frail, just like you and me, subject to the pain and uh, uh, the trials of this life. And so we can empathize with his plight. But there comes a moment in Job's life when his perspective absolutely is brought in or, or is changed. And this happens by the voice of the Lord himself in Job 38.1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And now the Lord is cross-examining Job. He's asking him questions from creation itself. Notice in verse 4, the Lord asks his servant, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, again the great flood, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Is it changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment? From the wicked their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Now, if you imagine yourself in Job's shoes, what a terrifying experience. The Lord is bringing an indictment against the frailty of Job by pointing to his creation and saying, how dare you doubt the one who is responsible for these things, and if you presume a better way, then you must be the one who understands and prescribes the limits of the heavens and, and can speak and create light. No, you can't. You can't even imagine how these things are sustained and exist or are ordered in the first place. It's something that you take by faith. But by these measures, your perspective can change. Your ears can be opened to the voice of God through His creation, magnifying His glories. When Job finally answers the Lord, having his ears open, his eyes open to these realities... He answers correctly in Job 40, verse 3. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Perhaps there are fears, concerns, anxieties that have entered in like a cancer deep within your soul that cause you in your weak moments to doubt the, the one who laid his beams across the waters, who wears light as a garment, who has established the tent pegs of the heavens. And if you find yourself doubting that God is sovereign and in control of this world, this day and age, our nation, your world, your future, then hear the voice of creation. Hear the voice uh, echoing in Job's ear, echoing from Psalm 104, and behold the glories of God, and behold the garment of the Lord's wardrobe, as it were, in the creation all around us, all around us, that shouts of His sovereignty, His power, 
his wisdom, that it's his interest, instrument, that it is his provision, and that, is an, and that it is an inspiration for praise. And this is for us personally when we doubt in times like these. But also, the, the psalmist would encourage us to take this message beyond our own souls and to proclaim it to others. If men and their sinful desires are motivated to shroud their eyes to the judgments of God, it is the call of anyone who shares the gospel to remind them that God judged this whole earth at one time, and He will judge it again. And the only way of escape is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our covenant head, our ark through the waters of judgment. So repent, knowing that you exist by the pleasure of a merciful God that gives you undeserving breath in your lungs, undeserving crops in your fields, undeserving clouds and rain. And repent before Him and say, I submit to your mercy. I submit to your Son. I recognize that I'm dependent on you and that in you I live and move and have my being. And would you save me, a wicked sinner, O sovereign Lord, by the blood of your only Son? Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the perspective that we glean when we look upon the evidence of your glory in both natural revelation in your world and specific revelation, special revelation in your holy word. I pray that we would hear your voice loud and clear and we would repent for our frailty, our fear, our anxiety, our doubt, our lack of faith. And I also pray that you would embolden the witness of your church to point to these things, these very evidences of your hand throughout history and in creation that remind us of the inescapable reality that you are Lord, that you are King. You are the sovereign over volcanoes and earthquakes, earthquakes and floods. You are the sovereign over heaven and earth and eternal life. And in you and in you alone is hope to survive death. I pray that we would be encouraged by this message of truth and emboldened to proclaim it to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.